Why are there so many boring brands in this world? And why are there so many mediocre companies? How do you create change and transformation in a constantly changing world? And why do more than 9 out of 10 companies fail when attempting to transform their companies? How do you build a resilient organization that adapts to change and thrives now and in the future? Welcome to the Extraordinary Podcast. My name is Tobias Dahlberg, founder and chief strategist at Wondering. And in this episode, I talk to consultant, speaker, and author Lior Arusi about these questions and much, much more. And I promise you, this is filled with great insight. In some places of this recording, there are a couple of words that are lost due to bad connection. I apologize for that, but I hope that it doesn't take away from the profound wisdom and insight that you'll find in this episode. I really hope this creates a lot of value for you, and I really hope that you connect with Lior, follow him, and more importantly, get his new book. There's so much to learn from him, and I hope you enjoy this episode. Today on the Extraordinary Podcast, I am joined by Lior Arusi, founder and president of Strativity Group, a global customer experience design and transformation firm. So Lior is an expert on customer experience, culture design, and customer transformation. He's a consultant, he's a visionary, and author of seven books, including Exceptionalize It, and now, most recently, he has a new book out called Next is Now, Five Steps for Embracing Change building a business that thrives into the future. He's also written more than 500 articles for publications around the world, including Harvard Business Review, and has been featured in media outlets such as CNBC, MSNBC, Bloomberg TV, The Wall Street Journal, and Fast Company. So welcome to the podcast, Lior. Such a pleasure and honor to have you as a guest. Thank you very much for having me. That is quite an impressive resume. How do you find time? I actually also saw that you have five children and you've lived in many different countries. How do you find time for everything? Well, I'm not sure, but I think, you know, somebody asked me the other day, you know, what are my hobbies? And I said, you know, if I enjoy what I do, I don't look for escapes in other hobbies. So uh, that's my, uh, you know, my hobby and my life. So it's just about prioritizing. It's about prioritizing, yes. Um, I want to first start by telling you how I discovered you, and it was in this book uh, called Simply Brilliant by William C. Taylor, I guess you call him Bill Taylor, where he quoted you for saying that the problem with most companies and brands is not that they're broken, but that they're boring. So boring, and and this spoke to me because I thought it was not only provocative, it also resonated with me as sort of thinking back where I started Wonder 10 years ago, which was really based on this idea that that is very scary and even dangerous to be mediocre and that it's really, and that's why we, we've embraced this idea of being extraordinary. And I think you, you talk about being exceptional. So it sounded like there's something interesting here and I really love that provocative statement. So maybe you can open up that a little bit. Like what, what did you have in mind when you said sure. that? Sure. So most, most organizations don't think of themselves as mediocre and mediocre is a very judgmental statement. Yeah. So they do believe that as long as business is coming, they must be doing something right. And as a result of it, over time, they take that inertia into um, into their business plan and basically don't really innovate. So what originally was exciting for customers who gravitated to their brand, who gravitated to their company, 
they keep on replicating it and then eventually think that that's a formula for success. But what they don't understand is that over time, what was once exciting then becomes boring, then becomes annoying. And, um, and when you become boring, you just send your, your customers to go elsewhere and find excitement elsewhere. Um, and, and especially in the era that we live in, which customers are constantly looking for the next excitement to report it on Instagram. I mean, sometimes you feel like the sunset didn't really su- the sun didn't really set because it wasn't on Instagram. You forgot to put it there uh, or something like that. So people are constantly looking for instant uh, excitement gratification problem. I mean, if your company is just reliable, it's boring for people. They want excitement. They want an emotional experience. They want something to be able to share with their friends and family as a story. Uh, and that became a new benchmark. And organizations are not paying attention to the fact that reliability often leads to, uh, to boring your customers and in the process sending them elsewhere. So would you say that mediocrity almost is synonymous with boring? Or where does boring come from? Is it something that customers just... Don't get excited anymore. Yeah, I think I think that that's the new the new mediocrity is boring because there are no bad products and you know with uh, ISO nine thousand and Six Sigma and everything else we all improved our processes and brought them to a decent place and nobody nobody's trying to create call centers today that will annoy customers you know everybody moved up in terms of of, of the quality of what we produce so the quality of our processes and so on and so forth and then the next generation is really how do we excite them how do we make them be part of our story and how do they share their story with our story that that is a new benchmark and boring will become basically the uh, the uh, parody line uh, in which customers don't want to connect to. yeah I love that so can you share a little bit about your company and what made it uh, what what made you start it in the first place that was 15 years ago right Sure. Yeah, we we are about sixteen years old. Uh, my background is in technology, and actually, um, you know, there, there was there, there were a couple of things that uh, were were um, coming together to bring uh, to bring this company uh, to uh, to a reality. But uh, one interesting moment was actually in Holland. Um, uh, we were selling uh, call center technologies, and uh, one of our clients, which was a cell phone operator, um, won in Holland the worst call center, and apparently in Holland this is a, a reward or an award that you don't take lightly, um, and his company was uh, embarrassed quite publicly, uh, wow. and that was after he installed a great a great deal of new technology in call centers. What happened? How did you how did you become a call center in Holland? And he, he made a fun statement to me that really stuck with me, and he said, Lior, even a fool with a tool is still a fool. <laughs> I mean, we bought your tools. I mean, the, the company that I that I was representing. He said, but but we were fools. We didn't know what we were doing. We didn't have a plan. We didn't have we didn't have any any context from an organizational standpoint, operational standpoint, measurement standpoint, talent standpoint. What does it mean to become customer centric? What does it mean to deliver great customer experience? We thought that the tool will just make it happen, and guess what? It does not. And that, that was a profound moment. I was looking for a solution to help my clients maximize the value of the technology. And I found out that the answer was very fragmented. If you wanted to go and say, you know, can you help them develop a better customer experience? It depends who you spoke to. If you spoke to a research company, they'll say, oh, no, yeah, yeah, we'll just do a research and, and the problem is going to go away. Then you spoke to a training company, says, no, no, we're just going to do training and for soft skills and the problem is going to go away. 
then you talk to a branding agency and they say, well, the problem is that the Penton color in your logo is really a little bit off. So if you only change your identity, the problem is going to go away. And each one of them was kind of right and kind of wrong at the same time. Nobody was willing to own the complete journey of transformation from the first diagnostic all the way to preparing the last employee in the organization. And that's where I saw the opportunity and decided to go and create an organization that is not biased by core competence like research or training or, or branding, but rather biased by what do you need in order to be able to go on that journey of transformation. And that's what we build here. So we are, we are a multidisciplinary operation. We are basically five companies in one. We have a strong research arm, we have consulting arm, we have training arm, we have a branding arm, and we have a small technology piece. Uh, and all together, we'll come to the client, and wherever they are on the journey, we'll be able to deploy the right tools. When, of course, just the tools because of a certain bind. So that's how we were born. Okay, sounds excellent. Leora, I think I'm losing you a little bit every now and then, so maybe we'll just have to switch off the, the picture after all because I, I get a little bit of a bad signal here and there. Okay. Okay. See. Here it is. <laughs> Okay, so that's what got you started. I think that's very interesting, and I think uh, that's pretty much what is happening over here as well, that agencies have a tendency to sell sort of their um, capacity or their capability as the cure for, for things which kind of fall a little bit outside the real problem. Um, well, if we talk about your new book, so you know, your new book has been out for almost two weeks, I saw at least on Amazon, and... Uh, I was uh, I was fascinated by the book. Actually, I think it's also very well structured for one. So credits for that. I think it's very easy to understand the flow of it. And uh, one thing which uh, which you talk about there is the skill that companies and people need to adopt in order to thrive into the future, and that's called change resiliency. Can you talk a bit about what change resiliency is and why it's needed now? Of course, of course. This is this is actually. When, when you look at the essence of change, for, for, for many, many years, companies treated change as an event. You know, we need to install a new software. We need to install a new process. We need to uh, venture into a new market. We are launching a new, a new product. And, and they will look at, at change as a, a bit of a chaotic period that we need to kind of uh, live through. And then we're going to go back to a very calm water of everything is going to be back to normal. So just, just if you can, you know, please, let's get together, suffer through the change, and we'll be okay. <laughs> and today's environment, with change being so fast and so quick and so vast, that we need to rethink the way we change. And a study that we have done with Harvard Business Review, we benchmarked 422 companies, and we asked them, how successful have been your change programs? And... Um, and to our shock, 9% claim that their change program have been successful. 91% wow. claim that they either had to devalue it, rescope it, downgrade it, but it wasn't successful. If you substitute the word change with the word strategy, because usually when do we change? When we want to upgrade the strategy, when we want to take mm. it to the next level. Uh, we understand that we are basically facing a massive challenge because if companies and CEOs cannot deploy their new strategies, then they are risking their survival in the marketplace. Wow. And when I look at the future, and, and the other thing that we talk about in the book is the fact that we need to learn how to operate with uncertainty, that we need to accept the fact that things are not going to be 
all the answers before we act. We need to learn how to act while all the answers is not there, are not there. And that is what I call change resilience. I claim in the book that change resilience is the scope and the speed in which your organization responds to change, embrace change, accelerate change. Those companies who are by default going to fight change, delay change, procrastinate change, are risking their survival and they are risking their future. And those companies who will be able to develop a higher, faster change resilience will be able to embrace the future and be the leaders of the future. So in many ways, the future belongs not to those who have brilliant products. Because remember, brilliant products are brilliant one time. Then mm. they become yeah. The future belongs to those who can, can uh, much faster and use news on a basis, not on a one-time basis. Right. That is really interesting. And I think that was great what you said about exchanging the word change for strategy. And that's something I've been also experiencing that I, I get a sense that a lot of companies are actually not pursuing any strategy these days. And, and that's not to say that they don't have an intent, but the strategy is not connected to the customer and the customer needs. But now that you said that, maybe it's actually that it's so much in this uh, struggle, like they're, they're part of the 91% that actually are not able to translate that strategy into real change across the whole organization. Is that something you're seeing as well? Like, is that, are those numbers from your survey, yes, are so, they really representative of your own experience as well? So I want to take, I want to take two examples that we can, we can maybe uh, flash out the concept a little bit more. So I was interviewed recently for the, you know, for the new book, for Nexus Now, and somebody asked me, what is the return on investment for a corporation doing Instagram? <laughs> and I looked at them and said, zero. He said, what do you mean? I mean, you have to measure it. Everything needs to be measured. I said, well, when you sign up for Instagram, what was your plan? I can only measure a specific strategy, but what was your strategy? Well, I was told that I need to be on Instagram. I said, the fact that you were told, this is probably part of the next issue, which is FOMO, fear of missing out. You were probably there because you were afraid that everybody else is there and you need to be there as well. But I cannot tell you that there is a financial driver to being on Instagram. I cannot tell you, you need to go back to your customer journey, you need to see where your customer is expecting you to be on Instagram, what's the alternative of not being on Instagram, and then you can decide if that specific change, in this case it's a technology change, is relevant to your business or not, and then you can decide. But if you launch Instagram without knowing what your financial driver is, you didn't have any energy. You were just doing expenses because you're fearing of missing out. And mm. then that is other where organizations, instead of thinking it through and developing a well-thought-out approach, are just shooting from the hip, following trends without really understanding how does this trend support my overall business goals. Yeah, that's interesting, yeah. I, um, when you said that about um, Instagram, I, I came to think about another thing you mentioned in the book, is this idea that change creates an identity crisis. And I've, I've certainly felt that many times with companies that, that the, perhaps the real reason why there is sort of, why, why people or companies don't change is actually has to do with identity. That perhaps that is, that is what's going on in this identity, you know, this, sorry, this Instagram thing as well. 
Can you maybe elaborate a little bit on the on the identity crisis idea? Sure, uh, absolutely. I think this is one of the biggest insights when 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 we think about change and when you look at the typical books today that cover change and the topic of change have been covered for many many years. Uh, you will see that the focus is constantly on what we call future-based fears. So mm. I don't want to be embarrassed. I don't want to do something I've never done. Uh, I don't know if I know how to do it. All of it is focusing on future-based fears. But what we discovered after doing over 200 transformation uh, projects around the world is that the real issue starts in past-based fears and identity-based fears. What happens is when people hear the word change, they associated it with a negative judgment on the past. When you go and tell mm. somebody you need to change, what they hear is everything you've done until now was wrong. You turned to the left, and now you need to turn to the right. You chose blue, and now you need to choose white. The past-based fear is about people who are hearing that they need to change from blue to white are wondering, what do I do with the past? For the last 20 years, I did blue. Now you're telling me to do white. I mean, are, are my last 20 years a waste? Yeah. Where do I file them in my personal history book? So that is past-based uh, uh, fear. Then comes identity-based fear. Identity-based fear goes even deeper. Because if I was a cashier in a bank, and now the banks are shutting down all the cashiers, as Sweden, for example, would love to be a cashless uh, country, mm. then who am I? Because I was always the, the, the cashier. And when you take the cashier out of me, you take my identity. And I call it in the book, people who are focusing on being a process operator as opposed to an impact creator. People who associate themselves with the software, with the process, with the location, do not have the freedom to imagine something new and to adapt to change faster, have very low change resilience because they are defining themselves from what they do and not the impact that they make on customers. And the moment you define yourself from the impact you make on the customer, what I call core cause, you free yourself up to allow the tools to change and adapt because you have stability through the impact you make and then the processes and the tools can evolve much faster. Wow, that is, I really love that. I, I, I don't recall ever hearing someone you know really reflecting on identity with change like that i think that's great and, and you also say change is deeply personal which i think is very profound often we're talking about organizations changing but there actually isn't anything i mean organization is just a structure right so there's only people and i think that's uh yeah so that's it, really deep yeah yeah I, w I would push you to think about it in one more context because we always tell people oh it's it's a it's, it's business, it's not personal. First of all, everything is personal, especially if you want your employees to delight your customers. That is a personal request. You cannot pay someone to smile sincerely. Second, and I introduced it in the book, is that an organization is the sum total of all their people's choices. Yeah. You know, an organization is not a set of processes. An organization is a set of people making decisions every day. And, and the moment you start looking at it that way, then you start humanizing how you engage with people and how you define your organization and your relationship with customers. Yeah, that is it's funny you said that. I was just going to come to that, to bridge to that statement, because I think it was great. You said an organization is the sum total of their employees' decisions. 
And I think that's both feels so true, but also feels slightly provocative towards management and leadership that probably think that their organization is a sum total of their decisions. Yeah, that's uh, welcome. Welcome to the new world. And I think CEOs need to understand that change <laughs> does not fail because they made the wrong decision. Change fails because 10,000 employees reject that decision and slow down and procrastinate and not deal with it and ultimately just not do it. Wow. So, uh, yeah. That, that is something that is something that we saw that I think a lot of organizations are failing to understand that they're really in the hands of their employees' decisions. Uh, and organizations are some of the small decisions, and the CEO cannot be in every call center call. The CEO cannot be in every conversation. But guess what? That is exactly where the reality happens. Wow. Well, okay, let's jump into be, to the solution then. I mean, we, I think this is uh, um, something I, I can imagine so many CEOs and leadership teams, actually all across the organization, we can all relate to this. Uh, what, what is it, if I'm running my business or I'm running my team, my division, what would you give as advice to sort of what is the process for creating that change? You already mentioned a few things, but what is like real practical process for me to take action so, now? So, so. So from an organizational standpoint, we talk about employee-led transformation, not a CEO-led transformation, not a leader-led transformation, but an employee-led transformation. We need to, if you, if you remember, if you recall in the book, the chapter about leadership is all the way at the end, and it was very deliberate because I was talking in the book to every employee, and my challenge to them is stop playing victim, stop playing like people are doing things to you. The change is happening to your CEO the same way that it's happening to you. And you've got to own it. You've got to own your own change. You've got to own your own uh, future. You've got to own your relevance in the marketplace. You cannot wait for the organization to do it. From an organizational standpoint, the message is that leaders need to engage their employees early on in the process and have them being part of the decision process. The first step in the five steps uh, for embracing change is facing the reality, facing mm. the fact. When we challenge the employees, you sit in the CEO seat and you tell me what would you do? Because guess what? I bet you that if you'll sit in the CEO seat, you will make exactly the same decisions because if you look at the facts without biases and, and colored lenses, you will be able to reach the same conclusions. And, and we've got to start any change with an unbiased, honest, authentic view of what the facts are. Otherwise, we're just fooling ourselves. Mm. So true. And, and then where you go from there, that's step number one, right? So yes, so the, the five steps are actually looking at where the failure points are in any type of change and how do we develop change resilience. So step number one is it's all about faith in unbiased way and asking yourself, what do I need to do to get out of boring and into exciting, which is basically being relevant to customers and in the marketplace? The second one, because it is personal, uh, the second element is about engaging with the emotional side, recognizing that there are emotions within you, recognizing that you are trying to repel change. And, and we are applying a couple of exercises there to recognize the different personalities of change rejection, the different reasons why people are acting emotionally, and try to understand there is actually a test there that you can take in order to see where you are stuck on the change. Mm. But but let's 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 agree and accept that there are emotions, and we cannot ignore them because the longer we ignore them, the more we fool ourselves. 
Mm, so true. Step number three is about redefining who you are. In order to give yourself strength to overcome the fear, what we call uh, past-based fear and identity-based fear, you need to create stability between your past and your future. You need to create a bridge. This is when you define your core cause and elevate yourself from a process creator to an impact uh, impact creator, from a process operator to an mm. impact creator. And that is, that is all about redefining who you are and what's your contribution and, uh, and identifying the impact that you make on people, the people around you. It can be in, an, in a personal setting or it can be in a professional setting. Wow. Step number four is all about practicing. You see, it's very interesting. Even the most successful performers in the world practice before they go on stage. We don't mm. do that. We send our employees with a set of rules, with a set of scripts, and say, go and do it, go and perform, without any preparation whatsoever. That's oh, a mistake. Yeah. Uh, so, so step four is all about applying the change from a conceptual thing to a practical daily routine type of things. How do you weave it into your daily routine? And step five is all about building your change resilience and keep on experimenting. Think about change resilience as a muscle that we didn't really practice. So, you know, like any other muscle, if you don't practice it, then we need that muscle. And in, in step five, we're giving different examples of how you can actually continue to experiment, celebrate the successes, push yourself a little bit harder. It's almost like a personal trainer of making sure that that muscle is not getting weaker, is not kind of dying down, but, but staying at top shape in order for you to absorb and embrace and accelerate the next change that's coming. Great. So five steps and then you, yeah, okay. And that's all in the book. So, I mean, that's, uh, I think that, that was for me a very central part of the book, actually, these five steps. And you also had some pretty nice examples. You, you also mentioned this one, in this one section, you talk about this CEO that wanted to adopt this Nordstrom way. Can you share that story? I think that was pretty funny. Sure. It's, it's fascinating because, again, this is not making the connection between the conceptual and the practical. You know? Yeah. You make a conceptual uh, uh, statement, but you're not willing to apply to. So, yeah, it was a, a very interesting story. I was working with a, a retail CEO who uh, we walked through one of his stores, and he was talking about uh, um, how he wants to bring the Nordstrom way to his business, and he read the book, and it's very fascinating and everything else. So I took a piece of tissue that I had in my, in my pocket, and I threw it on the floor. And he said, well, why are you doing that? And I said, well, it needs to be cleaned up. And he said, yeah, let me call my assistant. I'll have somebody come here and clean it up. And I said, if you read, if you read Nordstrom way, you know that the CEO will pick up that, that piece of paper. He yeah. or she will not be arranging for somebody else to do it for them. And that was my message to him. It's not about you making the declarations. It's about what do you actually do? Would you pick up the piece of tissue or did you think that it's beneath you? Wow. And if you think it's, it's beneath you, then all your employees will think it's beneath them too. Yeah, yeah. that is quite bold as well as a consultant, right? They don't, you're not afraid of being kicked out of the building, are you? I think that, you know, Tobias, I have to tell you that I think consultant needs to evolve from having all the answers to becoming personal trainers to allow their clients to find the answers and to practice the answer. Mm. I think that is the biggest evolution that we are going to see is, you know, with, with availability of, of information, transparency of information, uh, consultants cannot be just the smartest people in the room. They really need to evolve into how can we help them gain the courage 
to mm. actually operationalize those answers and not just getting those answers. Love and it. That, that will yeah. be that will be the new frontier for us. That that is really good advice. That is really good advice. I I've been reflecting on something similar, but you just said it. That's that makes perfect sense. Um, uh, another speaking of practical advice, you also mentioned that uh, you advocate this idea that CEOs should spend five minutes or more per day calling customers just to thank them for their business, not to sell them anything, but just to say thank you. What 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 is behind this idea, and what typically happens when when CEOs sure, again adopt it? So let me tell you what 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 happened. So I have a CEO who practices it, and he said, Leo, you have to understand if you do that. You know, 50% of the calls will be hung up on you, on your, in your face, that because people think it's a prank. <laughs> <laughs> he said to me, when you do that, you have to be ready for the possibility that they'll just hang up on you because they think that it's a prank, you're not the CEO, and so on and so forth. <laughs> but it's the same concept of get started. It's the same concept of you've got to operationalize this. You can't just go talk about it. This is about doing it. And, and I said, if you cannot commit five minutes a day to call a customer and say thank you and start your day with gratitude, then don't tell me you're going to transform your business because you're not willing to transform five minutes of your day and tell me you're too busy for that. And I actually, I tell a story in the book about a CEO who was, again, bragging about the conceptual but not leaving the operational. Mm. And he was talking to the Disney Institute to see how Disney do things and so on and so forth. And when I proposed to him the five minutes to call a customer, he thought that I was completely, completely insane and disrespectful and that I, uh, that I don't understand how CEO operates. And, and I said, I'm sorry, but we live in a world of role models, you know? I'm sorry if I upset you, but if you think it's outrageous and preposterous to expect you to call a customer once a day and say thank you for five minutes, I don't think Disney Institute or any other institute is going to help you. That's fantastic advice. And actually, in Richard Branson's latest book, in his autobiography, he talks about doing that actually for his, um, he says that when he flies on his own airline, that he will uh, ride back home and he will call upon people uh, from, I think it's virgin upper class, his customers, yeah. and just out of the blue. And I think he mentions these same experiences that people don't actually believe that he's calling them. But that is, uh, I can imagine that that's, that's a mindset shift as well, and kind of like humility and empathy towards customers, maybe shifting. The, the, yeah, yeah that, that is correct, because for a lot of the CEOs, this is the job of lower-level people in the organization, not their job. You know, they, they've already uh, graduated from that level. Yeah, right. So more than the five-minute rule, if you could give CEOs, let's say, a, a, a magic pill that would help them change either their mindset or their behavior or attitude or something in a one major way, what would that be? So there is a, there, there is a, um, a certain reality that when you look at the majority of CEOs and where they came from, they came usually from operational finance. Mm -hmm, yeah. And that means that their whole career was predicated on successfully managing Excel sheets mm -hmm. and pie charts and graphs. They, that, that means they have not spent too much time with human beings, especially their employees and their customers. Awesome. They spend most of their time looking at the world and being successful and getting promoted by managing Excel sheets and budgets and P&Ls and pie charts and graphs and all these type of things. Mm. And 
in a world that you call Tobias extraordinary and I call exceptional, mm-hmm. this is all about the power of the human spirit. If exactly. all you want to do is a frictionless experience like Amazon, you better go and check first, what is Amazon average profitability for the last 20 years? It is less than 1% a year. I do not know too many companies who can survive on that level of profitability, right. and I do not know too many companies that their investors will allow them to exist for 20 years like this, okay? Yeah. So if, you, if you're striving for frictionless, humanless uh, um, uh, customer experience, uh, as your differentiator, good luck, but I don't think it's the most profitable way to, to operate. Yeah. Um, so I think a lot of them needs to go and question, are the tools and approach to business that got them to here is going to get them to the next level? I am I'm challenging them to rethink what they stand for and what will be their toolkit moving forward. And I, I would su- suggest to you, that the toolkit will include authenticity and humanity if they want to be relevant in the marketplace. Yeah, no, I couldn't agree more. I think I just haven't been that outspoken with actual CEOs about that, but I'm going to really take your advice on that because... When I do speeches, I would I would definitely speak of this similar topics like, you know, the business really needs to be a more human affair, that it's really about humanity and improving people's lives. And we tend to forget that. I don't know if it's if it's like the conditioning created by the industrialization era or what it is, but we sort of tend to think of business as something very mechanical. I don't know, is it the business schooling or what is it? I mean, why why is the, I mean this should be so- this should be like self evident, right? So, so it, it is not actually, and actually if you do go back to William Winslow Taylor, the father of the scientific management, yes. okay, in his book from 1902, he actually writes, in scientific management, we do not ask for the initiative of men. In fact, we ask for men not to take initiatives. We want mm. men, in that case employees, to consistently operate by the process. So yes, it is embedded in generations of business schooling that takes the customer and the employee for granted and strip them away from their humanity and emotions and treat them as basically wallets Mm. and and look at sales as a form of trickery of how do I extract more money from people. Look at the budgets that we have for sales versus the budget that we have for delivery, for call centers, for delivery of the value, they are not in the same level. Mm, We're still chasing sales as the holy grail and delivery and call center and operation as a cost center. Yeah. Which means we are very strong at making promises, but we are not willing to put our money in the delivery of those promises. Right. So what is something that, in your experience, that you have implemented successfully with customers, with your clients, that have created the most uh, impact for them? What would you say that would be? A, a bigger story, and that's a story that uh, Bill Taylor uh, got to know us, is Mercedes-Benz, uh, where we had 25,000 employees who worked for 360 independent dealers in the U.S., and they were selling cars. They were not selling the this halo, they were not selling uh, any of that, and as a result of it, faced a very, very uh, price competitive environment. And uh, we, we put together a customer experience transformation there and implemented it across all these uh, locations 
uh, it's a massive, massive uh, uh, type of a program. But to see them both taking the number one position in customer satisfaction while increasing their profitability was, was a magic. Because people think that customer experience is about cost and, and then profitability is countering customer experience. And they've never been number one customer experience in the U.S. In fact, Lexus was the number one for many, many years. Uh, and we toppled them within two years and took that position while increasing profitability. And, and people look at this as, I did not know that that, that that is possible. We always thought that the two are conflicting. And we've always claimed, no, profitability and passion needs to go hand in hand. Otherwise, you're doing something wrong. Wow. Wow. And, and um, what do you do yourself to, to be exceptional and to really incorporate this thinking? I mean, maybe both in your personal life, but also for your company. Is that something, have you founded, have, have you built your company around these same principles and the same, the same thinking? Uh, I, I talk in the book about the, the ultimate principle that, that my company is, is, is uh, based on, which is always do the human thing first. Mm. And this is applied to small little things like a client just canceled the meeting because there's a death in the family. We don't just say sorry, we send them flowers. Yeah. Or a client uh, just, uh, just told us that uh, his wife went into delivery, we, set, we sent something because we always want to be part of their story. And also in difficult moments, uh, but then, then on the largest on the larger scale, when we design our programs, it's all about bringing humanity to to uh, to life. And I have to tell you, it's interesting because um, I, I had a client who came to me once, and he said, "Leo, I have to ask you a question." Yeah, he asked us, "Why why did you stick by us? Why why did mm. you stay by us as a, a as a consultant and didn't fire us?" Because I do talk about firing customers when they are absolutely <laughs> crazy. Um, and and I said to him, I'll tell you. I mean, we we have seen we've seen your situation many times before. And I guess the best answer I can give you is, um, we believed in you more than you believed in yourself. That's the wow. best way that I can I can uh, I can explain that to you. Wow. We believed in you more than you believed in yourself. Wow. That is transformation. Brilliant. Transformations are absolutely difficult. Uh, the naysayer and the change rejectors are absolutely going to fight you um, uh, every step of the way because they don't want change to happen, because change is threatening to them, and so on and so forth. But at the same time, when you actually show them the light and the people who are willing to actually go through it, it's fascinating to see how they are evolving. It's fascinating to see that they can make it happen. And then the stories that come out, uh, as a result of the change in performance, is just absolutely uh, phenomenal. Wow, that's great. That is that was a very good summary. I think we're running out of time. And I, uh, my last question is, uh, before I, I, I want to, for everyone who's listening to the podcast, just say go out and get Next is Now. It's really great reading. And, and thanks for all these great ideas, a lot of wisdom, actually a lot of takeaways for me personally as well. And um, a final question: How can people engage with you if they want to? What, what, how do they? How can you? How can you contact Lior? So the, the best way is to reach us through the Strativity website, the Strativity.com website. There's an info at Strativity.com. Uh, really, I mean, some people uh, reach out to me via LinkedIn. LinkedIn is a great way to maybe uh, read some of my latest thoughts because I post a lot. I'm sure you've seen. Yeah. With the new book, uh, there are a lot of uh, activities taking place. But the best way is just to uh, reach out there via info at and just uh, request that, that the information will be forwarded to me. And uh, 
we can go from there. I mean, the best way that I tell my clients is uh, this is not about the matter of budget. I mean, we work with very small clients. We work with large clients. We do keynotes. We do big transformations that cost millions of dollars. If the right mindset is there, if both sides want to work together, we always find a way to work together. Great. Fantastic. Well, thank you so much, Lear. This was really powerful stuff. Thanks so much for joining the podcast. And, uh, and uh, I think people um, are, are really going to be inspired by this. And, and I think most of all, you create a lot of value. So I really uh, hope that you go out and get the book and, uh, and uh, follow Lior. There's so much advice. So thank you so much once again. Thank you very much for having me.